You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. One of the goals of open banking is to make possible the idea of embedded finance. Embedded finance, which we've discussed in other episodes, means banking services seamlessly incorporated or embedded into the other parts of your daily life. So when you're grocery shopping or buying a new TV or planning a vacation, if you need financial services, they just show up. Easy to use, at low cost, perfectly and securely integrated into your everyday experiences. For many of those building open banking, this is the dream, or at least part of the dream. But there is one place where this kind of experience is not a dream at all, but very much real. That place is China. Over the last decade, China's economy has undergone one of the most radical digital transformations in history. They have moved from a world marked by backpacks full of cash to a world with no cash at all. The fact is, when it comes to creating truly seamless financial services, baked right in to all kinds of digital experiences, the West is still very much chasing China. Although they have been successful in creating a digital economy, the road China took to get there was winding and often surprisingly counterintuitive. Monopolistic market forces and real technological disruption played more of a role than one might think. It is a journey that is still far from over, but one that contains many instructive lessons for others aspiring to the same goals. Our tour guide down this road has experienced this transformation firsthand and will help us understand how China, in its own way, has become one of the most advanced digital banking environments around. Richard Turin is the foremost Western expert on the rise of financial technology in China. An engaging speaker and award-winning technology leader, Rich is also an international best-selling author on the subject of banking innovation. He previously headed up fintech teams at IBM in Singapore, following a 20-year career creating financial products for investment bankers in New York. Living in Shanghai for the last decade, Rich has experienced China's banking revolution firsthand. Captured in his most recent book, Cashless, China's Digital Currency Revolution. Rich, thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Let's start at the beginning. When you first arrived in Shanghai in 2010, China was still decidedly not cashless. What was it like to move money around or pay for things back then? When I rented my first apartment in China, uh, it was really culture shock. Of course, the lease signing and everything was very official. 
But the most unusual thing was having to provide the security deposit because I had to go to the bank and I took with me a backpack in which I put big bricks of 100 RMB notes. Now, what people have to know is the largest banknote in China is 100 RMB, which is around $18 or $17, something like that, right? So when you want to get US dollars, two or 3,000, which is 20,000 RMB, you end up with fairly large blocks of money. There was no WeChat. There was no Alipay. Most of the small, tiny little shops were cash-based. It was a very different world to the one that we live in now in China, where everything has gone cashless. And we use the payment apps, WeChat Pay and Alipay for just about everything. So let's describe that to our listeners. A little more than a decade later, the experience of moving money around in China has radically changed. What's it like now? The real big thing is more subtle. Number one, I travel around and I have no cash in my pocket and there is no need for cash because all of my payment is made through either of two payment apps. One is WeChat Pay and the other is Alipay. And they're simple apps that you open up on your phone. You push a button, a QR code pops up, the coffee shop scans the QR code and they're paid. It's seconds and it's contactless and it's simple. And that would be the easy part. And if I was a listener right now, I'd say, well, who cares? I walk up with my credit card and I, you know, I tap my credit card and I pay and I go, or I use Apple Pay or Google Pay and I can do the same. And you'd be right. The difference is that these apps that I reference, WeChat and Alipay, are 360-degree lifestyle apps. So it's not just about buying coffee. It's about banking. It's about investing. It's about buying insurance. It's paying for your car service. It's calling your car service, car service being an Uber. It's buying groceries. Whereas Google and Apple Pay stop with that paying at the register and buying that coffee, these apps are all-consuming in your life, and virtually they handle all aspects of our financial life in China. And it's dramatic and different. So let's decompose that answer into two parts. The first, the actual payment mechanism, the humble QR code, quite different than NFC or Google or Apple Pay. The great thing about a QR code is you don't actually need a device to receive a payment. Is that right? That is 100% correct. So in the earliest days, uh, shop owners who did not own a cell phone would team up. So somebody's kid would have a cell phone and they would basically print out QR codes, which cost almost nothing, paste them onto their shop wall. And they, in the very early days, not anymore, but you know, they would basically share an account among people or their kid would have the account, but it cost zero. This is the revolution. 
In 2014, every person with a noodle stand on a street corner could paste the QR code and become digital. They could become part of a digital payment revolution that they could not imagine. Before, with credit card systems, they were excluded. They didn't have a telephone line. They didn't have the money for a point of sale system. Now with QR codes, all they did was print it out, paste it on, and they could accept payment. It was truly revolutionary, and it was really the miracle that was behind China going cashless today. To be clear, WeChat and Alipay are not restricted to social networking and delivery services. They offer banking services in earnest. Oh, yeah, Al. Look, that's a key thing. There is the payment system on the app where you may connect it to your bank, whichever bank that is. But then both WeChat and Alipay have their own banks. WeChat has a bank apropoly named WeBank, and Alipay has MyBank, which actually comes from Ant, which is MyYi, M-Y, MyBank. And both of these are active in full banking services. And not just deposits and payments, investments, credit scores, intelligent add-on services, right? Well, when you look at the banking side of the payment apps, you're looking at a complete uh, portfolio of products, everything from loans. You get, at one point, the world's largest uh, mutual fund, which was uh, UEBAL. They are complete financial tools. Coming back to your earlier answer, we covered the first part, QR codes. The second part was a description you started to give about how these apps, WeChat and Alipay, are integrated into your life. The term you often hear associated with these apps is super app. What exactly is a super app and how is it different from what we see from Western tech companies? We can think in the most basic sense as of a super app as a singular app that has many functions. You might say, if you're from the West, well, Amazon. And that's probably the best example we've got because Amazon has buying stuff, it has watching TV, and it even has some basic financial services available. It has a credit card and debit card, has some financial services. But that's only a portion of it. So when we say super app in the China sense, we mean an app that really has this 360-degree nature for your lifestyle, meaning there is no part of your life that that app cannot integrate or cannot have an impact. So when I use WeChat, okay, it's a texting social engagement platform. It allows me to give people messages. That's great. But today on that app, I bought groceries. The app is capable of handling many, many different segments of your life. And one of the ways that it does it is through something called a mini program. And these are really critical. Let me explain why. When you think of an app, you think of, well, Amazon 
is an app and they control all services on the app and they build the app. That's true. Now, what if you could build a program that attaches that to that app? And that's what makes WeChat and Alipay, both of them, so super. Because now you have Alipay basically saying, okay, you are a grocery store. You can build a program and that program will launch from our app. The payment, the security, the uh, web protocols, it's really cheap to develop the app and it will work off ours. So a person on Alipay simply needs to push a button, go to this mini program and bang, you're using what is essentially an app within an app. That's what allowed these super apps to become super. So that's where the third party developer ecosystem lives. If I'm some startup in China and I want to get my amazing new digital product out there, I don't create an app for Apple or Google. I create an app for WeChat and Alipay. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really funny because it was a, it's a big issue and very hard for many Western companies to conceive of. They come to China, they want to do business. And the first thing their web or internet platform developers say, you know, the Western guys come over and they say, well, we need to be a, build a Chinese internet site. And the web developers look at them and say, no, you need to be build super apps for WeChat Pay and Alipay. The transformation from a society heavily reliant on cash to one almost entirely cashless happened almost overnight. As soon as there was a way for people to send and receive money quickly, easily, and at virtually zero cost, no surprise, they took to it like wildfire. By adopting the humble QR code as a de facto standard for payment, even the fishermen on the side of the road was now digital. But making it free and easy to move money was only one half of the equation. The other half was this new idea of the Super App, a single app that serves all your daily needs, all in one place. At first, this may sound like Amazon or Facebook, but there's one big difference. With Super Apps like WeChat and Alipay, all the banking services are already baked in. So whenever the other non-banking experiences need to do banking things, they can do it. Because the banking data and the lifestyle data all live in the same ecosystem. You may remember the term to describe this kind of system from earlier. Embedded finance. In China, thanks to WeChat and Alipay, this is very much how financial services work today. Richard tells us more about how these super apps function and how they came to be. What the super apps did was first to manage payment and then having mastered payment, they then went on to banking. What they've created is something that we sort of dream about in the West we live in a highly siloed financial world where you've got an app for your bank, you've got an app for your investment, you've got an app for your insurance. And what 
WeChat and Alipay were able to do were to integrate these all into a single platform. Now you say, how powerful is that platform? I can give you a wonderful example. It's so powerful that banks have actually taken to building their bank apps as mini programs so that people can access them directly from WeChat and Alipay because they don't actually want to open a separate banking app. They'd rather just open it from WeChat or Alipay. It is sort of a shocking thing. The banks had to actually put their wares onto these super apps in order to be where their clients are. And that is so critical. And the clients have something that we do not have yet in the West. We have this fluidity. It's what I call hypermobility. The apps provide you with sort of two clicks. Okay, the money is now there and you're done. And when I say the money is there, it's virtually any service that's available in the entirety of China. It's dramatic. We do not have that yet. A couple of times now, you've mentioned 2014. In your book, you talk about a landmark decision China made to grant banking licenses to their tech giants, a move, you say, that could have been replicated by the West, but they chose not to. Tell us more about this landmark decision. 2014 was dramatic for China. China has 1.4 billion people. Okay, that is an inconceivably large number. So the banking regulator knew already that the only way to provide financial inclusion and banking services for such a vast population was to use digital as a way of improving basic government services and improving people's lives, especially those in remote areas. 2014, the People's Bank of China made a landmark decision. They granted four private banking licenses in China, and the four private banking licenses were granted to Tencent, which is the parent of WeChat. The other, of course, was to Alibaba, which became Alipay, and they're sort of an equivalent to Amazon. The third to a company called Baidu, which is the equivalent of Google, and the fourth to a large electronics retailer called Suning, which is just a very, very large electronics shop. But the revolution is, think about it for a second. Think about the U.S. regulators granting banking licenses to Google, Amazon, and Twitter. This is a revolution. In China, the thought was the only way we're going to get financial inclusion and banking services out to these 1.4 billion is through using modern digital technology. You just can't simply build enough brick and mortar banks or branches in small towns all over China. Just not not gonna work. So that was a dramatic date. And there's sort of an interesting caveat to it. And that was that the banking regulator decided to actually sacrifice some profits, some margin from the big six or big four large state banks in favor of digital competition and new startup digital financial institution. So China in 2014 decided to open up banking to 
digital competition. How would you compare that to what was happening in the West at the same time? 2014 was a really big year. It was the year that Apple Pay launched, and it was also the launch year for Alipay and WeChat Pay in China. And I like to draw how different their launches were. When Apple Pay launched in 2014, it was launched with the NFC, Near Field Communication Enabled, iPhone 6. So in order to get Apple Pay, you had to buy a new phone. Now compare this to Alipay and WeChat Pay, both in China. They use QR-based systems and they specifically designed their software so that it would run on absolutely the most bare bones smartphone that had a camera in China. And that was a pretty cheap device. So it's a system that uses QR codes and your local noodle shop. Basically, all they do is they paste a QR code on the wall and they can receive payment. That's it. They don't have to buy a point of sale system where you swipe cards. They have nothing. And they can become digital at zero expense. Meanwhile, the other users, the people who want to pay, they don't have to buy a new phone. So one I like to call financial inclusion 2014 style. And sadly, I like to call Apple and Google Pay financial exclusion 2014. You describe China's experience as being the opposite from that of Europe or the UK. Can you describe how they're opposites? Yeah. When we look at open banking, particularly in UK, for example, the banking regs basically said, look, banks, you have to open up your APIs, your application programming interface, which is basically a door for data to go in and out of the bank. And there are special doors for different kinds of data. But it was by regulation. In other words, banks were mandated to undergo and to take on open banking by regulators. And in China, because of the the tremendous use of WeChat and Alipay and the disruption to the banking system because of them, banks were brought into open banking by disruption, not by regulation. Ironically, in China, regulators never had to tell banks, oh, you have to open now. You have to open your APIs. Banks in China went into open banking because they were being disrupted. Their banking business was being killed, their payment business particularly, and they realized the need to work on the platforms in order to be near their clients. So gradually, they started with opening advertisements on WeChat and Alipay. Then it went from advertisements to buy this. Now... You can find banks that have full-on mini programs that allow you to access your bank account through the payment app. And it's really humiliating for the bank because, you know, some years ago, the banks there, look, you download our app and you're going to use that. Now they must be where the client is. The client is on the app 
and they have to be there. So there's there's just no way around it for them. And it was really um, open banking by disruption as opposed to what I like to call open banking by regulation. So in a truly ironic twist, Europe's open banking was legislated and driven by regulation, top-down, while China's open banking was market-driven by massive technology disruption, bottom-up. Do I have it right? Absolutely. That is better put than I could. And there's a certain irony to that because most, of course, think, well, um, you know, you'll hear many people say, well, China was successful because of digital payment because the government mandated it. These were all free market innovation on the Chinese market and uh, had nothing to do with government support beyond, of course, the original regulatory granting of licenses. Super Apps, a single app that runs every aspect of your life, a construct that hasn't quite taken hold in the West, at least not yet. The closest parallel would be the smartphone app stores that most people are familiar with. But in China, the super apps have become so dominant that when you want to create a new app, you don't build it for Google and Apple, you build it for WeChat and Alipay. A big part of what makes these super apps different from their Western equivalents is what lies at their heart. Banking. Not just payments or microtransactions, but full-fledged banking. The reason they can do things Apple and Google can't is rather simple. It's because these super app ecosystems are in fact run by licensed banks. In 2014, China made a rather radical decision. They decided to allow their technology giants to become banks. And this, in turn, led to a wave of financial innovation unlike anything seen before. A wave so disruptive that it led to an explosion of growth, resulting in the creation of the most active digital banking ecosystem in the world. Leading also to a dramatically high-tech crash known as the peer-to-peer lending crisis. And the disruption is by no means over. You may have noticed something unique about China's approach, something perhaps counterintuitive. Their approach to financial innovation was almost entirely market-driven. The only real government action was to give the tech companies banking licenses. From there, it was the market that led to QR codes, super apps, and embedded finance. In turn, waking up the old guard and forcing them to innovate too. This course of action lies in stark contrast to that being taken by the West, who, ironically, have opted for a more top-down approach, preferring to regulate their banks into innovating. It is this ironic contrast that Richard describes as open banking by disruption, as opposed to open banking by regulation. As if this wasn't enough for the banking sector to adjust to, 
China has now entered a new chapter of its financial evolution. The digital yuan. That's where Richard and I pick things up. Let's switch gears. For the past several years, China has been working on the digital yuan, the Chinese version of a central bank digital currency, or CBDC. Many countries are working on CBDCs. The Bahamas actually uh, gets the crown for first live. But China's effort is easily the most technically advanced and already the most widespread. Why don't you tell us more about the digital one and what makes it unique? The most important thing to think about is that this is sort of the evolution of the payment apps. So I like to call WeChat Pay and Alipay version 1.0 of digital payment. And the reason is they are simply the first generation to come along and they are wonderful. And now we're looking at the next evolutionary step, which is a digital currency. Now, let's break it down very simply so that we can understand what exactly is a central bank digital currency. When we use a banking app on our phones in the West, or when we use uh, WeChat or Alipay in China, and we see an account balance. So it says I have 10,000 RMB, roughly $1,500 in my bank. So when I see that number, Basically, that number is on my phone as a digital representation. It shows me the numbers, but the money is not on my phone. The money is in a bank account, and those numbers are simply telling me how much is in that account. And that account is accessed digitally through the phone and through the internet system, right? When we take the next leap into digital currency version 2.0, we suddenly make a very, very profound and different, a big change. And that is to recognize that money can be digitized into a string of ones and zeros. When I use central bank digital currency and I have the same 10,000 RMB on my phone, it really means that you have the digital representation in zeros and ones in your digital wallet this is an evolutionary product for cash. It's the next evolutionary step getting away from accounts and digitizing or putting into what's called token form money. And uh, we owe it all to the folks from cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin. Whether you like it or hate it, it doesn't really matter. We all owe them a debt of gratitude because most of the technology comes right out of the cryptocurrency world. With a big difference, of course, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are not fiat currencies, whereas CBDCs still are, right? Absolutely. In my first answer, I explained digital currency, but now we have to talk about the first part, CB, as in central bank digital currency. A central bank digital currency is the equivalent of a banknote. It is issued by the central bank. So if you have 100 RMB central bank digital currency on your phone. It is backed by the government. It has the full faith and credit of China or whatever government behind it. In many countries, their CBDCs are 
still in the research phase. Where is the digital one today? Is it live? It's in trial in about six or so different cities in China. Central bank digital currency took China seven years to design and to put into to trial. It's a complicated bit of technology because unlike, say, cryptocurrency, which does not connect with the banking system, it does not connect with uh, many parts of your life, digital currency does. It, by and large, works, but there's still quite a ways to go before it will be fully launched for nationwide use. But if I follow, this CBDC provides built in a lot of the functions that today is owned by Alipay and WeChat. Absolutely. There's sort of a internet meme that's going around, which I'd like to sort of put to rest if I can. And that meme is that central bank digital currency was designed to destroy both WeChat and Alipay. That is simply not true. And I'm going to give two ways that you can sort of, we can wrap our heads around this. The first is the date. As I mentioned in 2014, it was a big year for both WeChat and Alipay. When they started, they were small. They were not, of course, the dominant payment means within China. That happens to be the start date for China's central bank digital currency project. It started seven years ago in 2014. So it's impossible to conceive that China wanted to make its digital currency as a vendetta against the payment platforms to destroy them when they started this research back in 2014. The, the timing just doesn't add up. The second point, which is really important, is a key comment from Mu Changchun, who is the head of the PBOC's Central Bank Digital Currency Research Center, and he's the head of the CBDC project. And his comment, the wallets, meaning the digital wallets for carrying money, are WeChat and Alipay. The money on the wallet will be digital currency. So what we're looking at is a system the digital currency, in order to be successful, by definition, has to be able to be used on the payment apps. And the digital currency will not be the primary or only way when you use these digital apps. You can pick from Alipay account, your bank account, a credit card. You can pick what source you want the cash to come from. What we're moving toward is a world where I have digital currency, I have money in the bank, I have money in my WeChat account, I have a credit card. When I pay, I will pick exactly the source where I want that money to come from. By turning their tech giants into banks, China unleashed a wave of dramatic financial innovation. These giants, WeChat and Alipay, have today become the largest payment networks in the world, with Alipay alone processing more volume than Visa and MasterCard combined. The incumbent banks have had no choice but to adapt to these super app ecosystems, creating a kind of de facto open banking 
parallels to Western efforts are striking. In both cases, there is an effort to level the playing field between technology players and banks, to strike that balance while promoting financial innovation. But whereas the West is still trying to disrupt their banks through open banking, the East has done such a thorough job of disrupting them already that they face a banking system dominated by two technology giants. Enter China's central bank digital currency, the digital yuan. Intended to replace cash, the digital yuan, like other CBDCs, aims to provide the foundation for an entirely digital economy, letting money move anywhere, instantly, for free. What Richard calls hypermobility. But because it's digital, this new kind of currency ultimately has built into it many of the functions that today are provided by the tech giants. So, is the digital one a way to level the playing field yet again? To swing the pendulum away from the tech giants and back towards the banks and regulators? That's true to a point, but it's only half the story. Absolutely, the banks are delighted with central bank digital currency because it allows them to participate in instant payment, which has been dominated by the payment platform. No question that the banks are delighted to get digital payment back. They can say, okay, you can pay with digital payment through our banking apps. But let's get the other 50% of the story in. People tend to look at the payment apps as being so successful that, oh, they've digitized everything that can be digitized. But still, there are tremendously large sectors of the economy that have not been brought into the digital payment universe. And a good example is salaries. Most who work for a company in China don't get their salary paid via Alipay or WeChat Pay. They get normal bank transfers. Now, with central bank digital currency, it will be a further digitization of an already large pie. So central bank digital currency doesn't steal business from WeChat and Alipay. What it does is it creates even more digital payment and even more digital money that people can spend on these platforms. It's not a zero-sum game. In your book, you're careful to say that despite any cultural differences, the West and East are ultimately on the same path towards a cashless society. What are the top lessons to be learned from China's digital journey? I think the first one is that when I look at either the Fed in the U.S., when I look at Bank of England, we are going to need brave leadership. If you look at the head of the PBOC, who, I, who is my superman, he's my superhero, Zhou Xiaochuan, he took a very brave step by issuing these digital licenses. And now that we're coming up onto the central bank digital currency age, we are going to need a certain amount of bravery from our central bank heads that they are probably unaccustomed to and probably uncomfortable with. 
And I hope that we have regulators who are willing to step up and understand that this is not zero sum. Even if it costs the banks short term, it will be long term good for the economy, the nation, and longer term for the banks as well. Second lesson is be optimistic. I know that many people, they have a dystopian view of China. They have a dystopian view of China payment. I get that. Your payments do not have to be like China's. But you do have to acknowledge and take the good things from China's payments system and look at them and live into them. The central thesis of my book is this constant drumbeat of if you want to look at our future, look to China today. When you look at these payment apps, which are now being replaced by the next version, central bank digital currency, we are easily a decade beyond anything we've got in the West right now. But the general look, shape, or feel of what finance will look like in the future in the way that we have hypermobility of money, the way that we have 360-degree super app platforms that, that solve our life issues. You know, th this is where we're heading. We're not, we're not going backwards, and we'll get there. Ours will look somewhat different, but that's where we'll be eventually. That future is beautiful. It's really magic to live in a cashless society. I live in it. Wonderful. Rich, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you. Hey, all thank you so much for having me. The rapid emergence of China's digital economy has been extraordinary. But its origins are not a mystery. In 2014, China took the bold step of issuing banking licenses to its largest technology companies and diving deep into the uncertain waters of financial innovation. Almost immediately, cheap, ubiquitous solutions like QR codes gave everybody a digital wallet. And then the super apps integrated those wallets into all manner of digital experiences. Embedded finance made real. But is it really open banking? Despite many parallels, at the end of the day, the whole ecosystem is powered not by a common shared standard, but instead by a private duopoly. It's less like open banking and more like if Apple and Google became the largest banks. One can only imagine how much more could be achieved on an open standard. Perhaps... The digital one is another way to get there. Despite great strides, like many other regions, China continues to seek the right balance between the tech giants, the banks, and the regulators. While their road may be unique, their destination is familiar. A financial system that is more convenient, more accessible, more inclusive. Banking products that are there when you need them, no matter what you're doing. Money that moves around easily and instantly at zero cost. 
a digital banking ecosystem that puts customers first. All of these goals align exactly with those of open banking, no matter where you go. While the East and the West may take different roads, we are, in the end, on the same journey. And we would do well to bring the best of our ideas together. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.